can connect and be able to serve, and I just am grateful for the, the worship team and being able to help our hearts be ready to receive the word, and I hope that you're ready as well. Let's uh, stand as we look at Psalm 40, if you turn there, and um, let's see what God has for us in his word. So we go from, our, from the bog, which is a word that's used in the first couple of verses in this passage, from bog to blessing, our Savior's deliverance is worth the wait, so... Psalm 40, to the choir master, a psalm of David, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth and a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust who does not turn to the proud, to those who go, out, go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book, It is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. And they are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all those who seek you rejoice and be glad. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. You may be seated. So I was reminded a few years ago, and then it came back to me while on vacation, that um, we have a need for a gospel accent. Let me tell you why I say that. Um, accents are usually an indicator not only of where you're from, but also an indicator of who you hang around. Uh, so when you, you talk about that, accents, they come from a community that you're surrounded in, whether it's your family or neighbors or schools or jobs. And even in this church of about 100 right now, I can tell by your accent where you're from. 
I can tell whether you're from the American South or whether you're from uh, New England or Texas or Oklahoma. Um, it, it's interesting with Colorado. You all don't seem to have any accent at all. You say everything just right. It really, it, you, just, you don't seem to have, there's not an accent that I can, that I can pick up here. But I know when we were going back east and, you know, Kansas had a particular accent. Then you get into Missouri and then Indiana, Illinois, Indiana, then Kentucky, North Carolina. Well, now you're talking about that. And when, when you're looking at this, it's important for us to understand not only that, but I came across a podcast not too long ago, and it's a podcast called Church Grammar. And when you're talking about grammar, grammar is basically rules for how you use words and sentences and paragraphs and also how you interpret one another. In fact, with there's proper grammar, but there's also slang. And I remember being in Trinidad that they would use these these words and really wherever you go in these little communities, everybody has a type of slang that they use in order to communicate. That way, when you're talking amongst each other, you can understand each other. But if someone's an outsider, you're not having any idea what they're talking about. And what that has to do with what we're talking about here is in Psalm 40 is that there is a, there's an accent, a gospel accent that we have that uh, can tell, where you can tell by the way people talk, by the way people act, by the way people engage with each other about where their, where their hope is, following Jesus. And, and it changes who you are. It changes how you act. He changes how you think. He changes really how you communicate, how you talk, whether it's in a proactive sense that I'm going to tell more people about Jesus and I'm going to tell them you know, about all he is and all that he's done. Or it may mean that there may be some things that change by subtraction. There may have been ways that you talked before you became a Christian that you know are not appropriate on how to talk now. But the thing is, is that the grammar and the, 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 the accent that we have is very clear to us. And when we read Psalm 40, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's going to be some words in here that are going to be very, very precious to you. And I think if you're not a follower of Jesus, what I'm hoping is, is that the Holy Spirit will help you to see the goodness and the glory of all that Jesus has done, is doing, but also will do in you. So as we continue on, let's look at verses one to three, and let's, look, let's talk about remembering. As far as we're being followers of Jesus, we need to remember where we were. We sometimes forget, don't we? But we need to remember. Say so verses 1 to 3. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. I waited patiently. There's an aspect of waiting patiently, eagerly, urgently, expectantly of the Lord to come and to rescue you. Those of you who are Christians, do you remember where you were before you came to Christ? Now, some of you, if you were a good little boy, good little girl, and you went to church your whole life, I've said this before, you may not feel like that God had a lot of work to do in you. You may have felt like it was just a tweak here and a tweak there. But the reality of it is, is that we were all in the same space. We were all in the same, going through the same issues. And in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, uh, that you, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And I think when we, when we think about our life, especially those of us who may have been in church world, you may not have really thought you were dead in your sin. You may have thought you were sick. You may have thought that you, you had some things, little, little things, like I said before, to tweak. But you were dead. 
Not only that, you're dead in your trespasses and sins on which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan is a deceiver. He wants you to think you were a good little, good little boy or girl and that God didn't have a lot of work to do in you. And that can be a source of pride for you. But no, that's not where we were. Satan may have you right exactly where he wants you in thinking that you're good enough not to really need to have to change and not to seek Christ for change. But he goes on. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. None of us were born Christians. None of us were born right with God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need to realize, as Christians, we need to remember where we were. Because if we forget where we were, then we may just think that we've been Christians our whole life and we forget about the fact and we forget about the grand work that God has done in us. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I want you to know about the grand work that God will do in you. Because when you look at where he says he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure, he put a new song in my mouth and a song of praise to our God. You may think, well, I wasn't that in that deep of a bog, or I'm not in that deep of a bog now if you're not a follower of Jesus. But yes, you are. But it's one of those things where you just may not be aware of how deep you are until you begin to realize and get that feeling back and that understanding back of, oh, this is where God wants me, but this is where I am. That bog can be from sin. That bog can be from your circumstances. That bog can be from you know, just certain things that are happening in your life right now. And God has promised never to leave you or forsake you. He's promised to always be with you, even to the end of the earth. And if you're a follower of Jesus, he has, even as you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, he will be with you. You need, to, you need to know that, and you need to realize all that he's done. We are now singing the songs of Zion rather than singing the songs that this world is singing, because the songs that this world singing is singing, the tune that they're singing exalts you. But the songs of Zion exalt Christ, rightly so. And that's where we need to be. And when people see the change that's in your life, it says many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. The, the Bible makes it very clear that we were blind before we came to Christ. But now we see that we were not fearing anything. We weren't worried about anything. The only thing we were worried about is exalting self. But now we fear, we worship, we awe the Lord. And it talks about how many will put their trust in him. What power there is when we are walking in this broken world. What power there is in a changed life for Christ. It's going to be a life that's not going to make a lot of sense to anybody. But it's going to make, it's going to make sense to you because you see where you were and you now see where God is taking you now. And that's where we get into verses 4 to 10. Is that not only do we need to remember, but we need to, in the meantime, pursue a number of things. We need to pursue. When we see all that God has done, about what he's done. He drew me up. He set my feet. He put a new song in my heart. We couldn't do that. He did that. And now when we see that many will see in fear and put their trust in the Lord, look at verse four. Blessed is the man, present. 
Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Many will see and fear put their trust in the Lord. Yes, because he is trustworthy. I think there's aspects of our life where we go about doing our own things. We're, we're thankful, God, that you died on the, that you sent your son to die on the cross and you got a thing waiting for me, a mansion waiting for me in heaven, but the things that you have for me now, I got this. And I, I, I don't know if we trust Christ. I think we trust Christ with heaven. But do we trust Christ with our marriages? Do we trust Christ with our with our lives, with our homes, with our jobs, with our character? Do we trust him enough to be in the scriptures every day, to pray every day? Or do we say, I only trust you, God, this far to get me to heaven, but please, please don't interfere with me. I got a good gig going right now. Please don't mess with me now. Please don't mess with my stuff, my heart, my mind. I just want you to be there for me for heaven. And I think when the Holy Spirit begins to work in our hearts and makes us realize, oh, is that what I am just using the Lord for, is to make sure I don't go to the hot place forever? Then I think that God is going to bring about a sense of our need for getting on our faces before him and repenting. Jesus did not just die to get us out of hell. Jesus died to be our Lord. He is our authority. And look at what changes in here. There's a pursuit of fact that you, you are going to pursue humility. Who does not turn around? This is the end of verse four. Who does not turn around to the proud, to those who go after a lie? Later on, he talks about how there's none that compares to you. I will proclaim and tell of them that yet they are more than can be told these wondrous deeds that he does. We pursue humility. We're not pursuing ourselves. We're pursuing Christ. And we're also pursuing truth where it talks about that he does not go astray after a lie. How can we know truth from his word? And we take everything else that we hear in the world and put it up against his word. And if somebody, if something else is going against his word, then that something else needs to go in our minds because it's a lie. We go after and pursue truth. Just because everybody is running toward a cliff thinking that's the truth does not mean it's truth. Truth is not based upon majority. Truth is based upon truth. Now, when we begin to talk about this and we talk about absolute truth, you know, the watchword in our culture today is the word tolerance. You got to make sure you're being tolerant. Now, one of the things when we notice, if you look at how people use the word 30 or 40 years ago with tolerance, it was you could disagree, but you could talk to each other and have that disagreement and, 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 and have that sense of, okay, we disagree. Now what tolerance is, is you have to believe exactly like I do. I have to believe exactly like you do. And if there's a difference, then you're being intolerant. And for those of us who hold to the scriptures and believe that absolute truth is absolute, it applies to everybody, not just you have your opinion, well, that's your truth, and you have your opinion, and that's your truth. No, we don't do that. We know that there is an anchor, a rock, that we can go to to know this is true. This is not going to be untrue 10 years from now. This is not going to be a different truth 10 years before now. It's true. And that's where we chase after truth. We are chasing after his word. And it disturbs me that there's some that may not be in his word every day. Because 
Where are you getting your truth? We have to be in this every day to understand, but also be in it to understand that, look, you have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. We may have to subtract from our lives people who are divisive, and we have to add people in our lives that are multiplying the truth of of the word of God in our lives. We have to be very careful what we are allowing in. When you go down to verse 9, now we're talking about how when we know the truth, we tell it. We proclaim it. We were having a Next Steps meeting one time, and Tim Corbin, who ministered a lot in, uh, in Seattle, Washington, and one of the things about Seattle was is that people have all different types of beliefs, and nobody had any problem going up to you and telling you exactly what they believed about how the world began, about how the world should work, about what needs to change in you. Nobody had a problem with that. Yet we as Christians seem to have a hard time telling other people about Jesus and how he rescues us from our sin and brokenness and how he brings us to where we need to be through the bloody cross and the empty tomb. We have a hard time telling people about that because we don't want to seem intolerant. But yet other people don't seem to have a problem with their worldview. Why do we have a problem with ours? Well, part of it is because we don't want, be, we don't want to be rejected. But do you remember what Jesus said? If you, if you reject me before men, then I'll reject you. I'll be ashamed of you before my Father who is in heaven. The, the person we need to worry about being rejecting us is Jesus. Everybody else has got their own issues. Everybody else has got their own whatever that they're trying to sort through. Nobody has it all figured out on their own. But with Christ, we can. And if he is the one that has rescued us, why would we hold back in telling other people about not only what he's done in history, but what he's done in us? Do we have a story to tell? We, we may not, and that may be something else that you may de- need to deal with. Why do we have a hard time proclaiming? Because look at what David's doing here. I have told of the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. And I, behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. I have told. I have not restrained. I have not hidden. I have spoken. I have not concealed. I'm going to tell it. I'm not going to shut up about it. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to, I'm going to make sure it is sprinkled and in everything that I'm doing, I'm going to marinate in what the gospel and be saturated in all that the gospel is. But why are we so afraid to tell others about who he is and what he's done? What's interesting in verses 6 to 8 is that if you read the, the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 5 to 9, is that Jesus, is that it says that Jesus is the one that is speaking this. So, this is a, this, these verses are about Christ. And look what he's done. Verse 6. I sacrifice and sacrifice an offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. But then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will. Oh, my God, your law is within my heart. What's he saying here? Well, he's saying here. Is that the, the system that was around before was that you take sacrifices and burnt offerings, and what that would do is take care of sins that you committed in the body. But what those sacrifices couldn't do is take care of where the sin was coming from your heart, your mind, your will. 
And so Jesus comes and says, I'm going to take care of that. Now, some of you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you could not imagine God coming in and changing all that you are. In fact, there may be aspects of it where you're like, that is too frightening for you to do. But I want to just tell you where you are right now is that you're, you're careening away from the things of God. And it may not seem like much right now, but the further you get away from him, the dimmer it will be. And I just remember when we went to Mammoth Cave and there was a piece of Mammoth Cave as we were walking around. And, you know, for a claustrophobe like me, that was really something that was a, a, a test of faith in a lot of ways. And so we're going down, not to mention the big gigantic spider that was at the door. But I, I digress. But we're, we're going in there and we're going around and we're going around. And I get to this part where the ceiling is right here. So it was just enough for me. And, and the walls were right here. It was just enough for me. David's having to bend down. But, and so I'm right behind him. Cindy's in the front. I'm in the back. And we're going through. And um, there was a delay up there. And so I was in that space. I couldn't back out because they said, if you have claustrophobia, I don't have, scale of 1 to 10, I'm probably at a 4. But if you're like a 9, 10, 11, they're saying, if you have claustrophobia, you have an issue, it's going to take you about 6 hours to get out. So if you think you're going to have an episode, don't. But I was about 15, 20 seconds in there, and I just, I just buried my face in David's back, and I just said, look, just, just when it's time to go, just move and let me know when we're clear. But we get to this part where it's wide open, and it's a place where you can sit, and they had lights everywhere, and then guess what they do when you're in that cave? To give you an idea of just how dark it is, they turn out all of the lights. And it's true that it's a darkness that you can feel. You can feel that darkness. Cindy was sitting right beside me. The kids were in front of me. If I hadn't, you know, been able to tactile feel her there, then you would have really felt alone. But then what the guy did was he turned on a little match. He just did a little match. And it was amazing how that light cut through all of that darkness. And it made us all feel a little bit better that we could see that there was someone there in the midst of that darkness. And of course, me being the preacher, I'm like, there's a sermon there. Because if you're in the middle of, of darkness, you can't imagine somebody being there to help you. But that's why Jesus over and over and over says, I am the light of the world. He that walks in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. And you say, well, it's a little tiny light, but that little tiny light can cut through that great big darkness. This is what Jesus has done. And he gives us, and he says, I delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. And you're saying, well, that's great about Jesus. But if Jesus lives in us, then that's us too. Do you delight to get into his word? I mean, do you like, in the morning, you're like, I can't wait to get in his word this morning? Do you delight to get before him in prayer? Joy Rayleigh, um, she's traveling this week, but Joy Rayleigh sent me something. I think I posted on Facebook. But it was something like Jesus has provided a way for us to have the king's ear. Why would we not take advantage of that? We can talk to God. And God talks back to us. Oh, I wish God would talk back to me. Open your Bible. He is there talking over and over and over to you, telling you exactly. And by his spirit, he makes that word alive in us. He puts his law within our hearts. That's why there's a difference. That's why he doesn't hold our sins that we committed before we were Christians against us. Because his law isn't in our hearts. 
But isn't that a beautiful verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. When you become a Christian, it's not simply just an ascent of, oh, I, of, of a bunch of information to believe and then you go on your merry way. God changes you. Christ changes everything. No longer are you wanting to do what you want to do. Now you are wanting to take God into every calculation that you make. And you want to do everything for the glory of God and for the good of those that are around you in loving your neighbor. We have to make sure and ask God, have you changed my heart? Or is, this still, is my life still just about me, but you're taking care of the end part? Ooh, come on, church. It's that, that no longer can we just be sliding and getting by. We, Christ is our all and all. We have to see where he is. But what about moving forward? Well, when I become a Christian, then everything's going to be smooth. I'm not going to have to struggle with anything. Everybody's going to be good. Everybody's going to be fine. I'm not going to have any issue with my thoughts. I'm not going to have any issue with my words anymore. I'm not going to have any issue with my actions because when Jesus saves me, I'm going to be perfect. No problems anymore. And some people think that. And some churches teach that. I I just want to draw your attention to the Bible. Because what the Bible does is give us a reality of what our lives are all about. In verse 11, it says, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Last week, I talked about how sometimes we have faith in our faith. And then when we don't feel the faith anymore, we think that, oh, well, I'm gone. Your faith, the object of your faith, hang with me. The object of your faith is not your faith. The object of your faith is Jesus. And what has Jesus done for you? He has died for your sins, rescued you from that brokenness, rescued you to himself through the bloody cross, but the empty tomb means that death has been, death is dead. Death has died. No longer do we have to worry about death as Christians anymore. But what else is he? He keeps us. He keeps us. It's not about how hard we hold on to him. It's about how much he holds on us. Do you know what kind of grip? There was a a deacon friend of mine who's now with the Lord. His, His name is Cecil Short. And one pastor said he had a hand that was like a country ham. You all know what a country ham is? Okay, maybe you don't. So, but it's big. And so when he would shake your hand, it's like your, your hand, he would just be just like, oh, you know, just a big grip, farmer's grip. And I, and every so often I'm like, boy, if I, if I'm ever off of a bridge and I need somebody to hold on to me, I want that, I want it to be that guy. That grip's nothing compared to the grip of Christ holding on to you. If we, if we are in his hand, He will never let us go. And you say, even when I said that, yes. Even when I did that, absolutely. And for those of you that are not followers of Jesus, he is there to hold on to you. He is there to rescue you. He is there to make you clean. He will throw your sins as far as the east is from the west. And he will not put them to your account anymore. A word here. Sometimes we do this to people where we have a higher standard than God. 
In other words, what we mean is, is that if someone did something before they were Christians and they became a Christian, God wipes out their sin. We don't. We keep remembering. I remember, go to a family reunion. They'll remind you of where you were. It's fun times. And I'm like, I'm trying to get away from that. Why are you putting this back in front of me? God won't do that. He has thrown your sins away as far as the east is from the west. He remembers them no more, but we still struggle. Verse 12. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. This is after his deliverance. His, his, his deliverance, his salvation deliverance. An iniquity is when you fall short of God's standard. And as a Christian, you're going to do that because you see this right here? Flesh. And those flesh still have desires that need to be, you have to, those desires need to be submitted to the desires of God. And that's a battle. You talk about a war? We face those wars every single day. Thoughts come across my, come across our head. Where'd that come from? actions that we do it doesn't seem like me but the devil is there he's a roaring lion ready to devour you but peter goes on he says resist him firm in the faith firm in the faith faith in your faith no faith in what jesus has done on your behalf you, we need to, when we are tempted with sin we need to look past the sin and see the savior when we're dealing with lust, you need to look past the lust and see the Lord. When we're dealing with speech issues, thought issues, you need to look past that and see what our Savior has done. Jesus is there every step of the way to give us what we need to do what he commands us. We are not alone. And when we see that, the joy that overcomes us, even in the midst of the valley, the joy that overcomes us is unbelievable. Even when our hearts fail us, even when our iniquities overtake us. He says, please be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Verse 13, O Lord, make haste to help me. Hurry up, Lord. I'm not holding up much longer. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor and who delight in my hurt. Isn't it sad? That there are people that rejoice when you are struggling. They love it. Why? Maybe it makes them feel better. Or maybe it makes them think, well, this Jesus that you're serving isn't so great. It's an unrealistic understanding of how the world works. We are still, as Christians, living in a broken world, dealing with, with our, sometimes our own brokenness, but also the brokenness of the people that are around us. And there are people that want us to just stop talking about Jesus. Stop living for Jesus. Please quit doing that. And they say, let those who are appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha, that something's going on. You see, I told you he wasn't worth it. I told you. But what happens? Well, verse 16 says, well, I've got something to say back to you. But it's not about you. And it's not even about me. But as, but may all who seek and rejoice and be glad in you. Is that you this morning? Are you rejoicing? And are you glad in Jesus this morning? Are you glad in Jesus on a Monday morning in traffic? 
Or Tuesday evening when you got to change the, it's your turn to change the baby's diaper. Or Wednesday when you got to take the trash out. Or Thursday when you get that call from a family member that's not doing too well and you're like, oh. There's lots of things in this world that can rip your joy away. But we pray, David prayed, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. And so we say, may all who seek you rejoice and be glad. May those who love your salvation say continually, not great am I and not how lousy are you. Great is the Lord. He gets the credit. He's the one that drew me up from the pit. He's the one that got me out of the miry bog. He's the one that set my feet on the rock. He's the one that put a new song in my tone-deaf mouth. He's the one that did it. And so great is he. We will praise him. As for me, I am poor and needy, whether financially, maybe, but spiritually, we are destitute. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God. When you see your own spiritual destitution, it is there that you're ready to receive the fullness of Christ. Because he'll fill you up and overflow. But as for me, I, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliver, deliver. Do not delay, oh my God. Now you say, well, I've been praying that over and over and I haven't gotten any deliverance. I haven't gotten any deliverance. I'm still dealing with these issues. I'm still dealing with stuff from without and within. I just want to tell you, one day, you will be delivered. We've had funerals, a number of funerals that have taken place over the last uh, year and a half, two years. I mean, an inordinate amount of funerals. And the ones where you don't know whether they were followers of Jesus have a very different tone than those that do follow Jesus. A very different tone. If you live your whole life trying to do it yourself, trying to gut it out, and by doing it in your own strength, you, you think that you'll be able to make it through, there's going to be one day when you're going to run out of strength. Your mind's not going to be as sharp as it was. You're, you're, you're trying to put together stuff. It's just it's not going to be as sharp as it was until one day we're not here. And sometimes there are people that live in light of here and now. And sometimes you find people that are living in light of eternity. And there is a difference. Because they're holding on to this world really, really lightly. But we've come across people that are holding on to their jobs and their reputation and their money and their fame and their personality and their power. White knuckling. Don't take it from me. And death is not something to be rejoiced in. Death is something to be avoided. No, don't take it away from me. But then those of you who are followers of Jesus, you're holding on to things in this world out of the responsibilities you have. You, there's families to raise. There's jobs to do. There's cars to, to maintain. There's buildings to take care of. God given allowed us to be stewards of this, but we hold on to that stuff. See the knuckles? They're not white anymore, are they? So where do the white knuckles come in? Because we've got to hold on to something. When Jesus said he set us on a rock. 
And that rock doesn't slip or slide. And it, and it steadies us all the way into eternity. And when we get to eternity, we are going to realize that our life that we were white knuckling so much went by like that. And we're upside down in our thinking. Well, I got to put all my eggs in this basket at heaven. Uh, no, we live in light of eternity. And every moment, every day, every minute, every hour is there being lived in light of eternity. Not skating by. Not letting the Bible get dusty. Not letting our knees not stay calloused. We're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not about that anymore. We have the ear to the king. And we remember where we were before we became Christians. Those of you who are followers of Jesus, you remember where you were. And see where he's taken you. And see that even in the midst of the hard times you're going through, he's with you in that valley. He's with you on the mountaintop. He's with you. Yet I fear that if some of you were to walk out of here today and something were to happen to you that was ultimate, that you would not be in the presence of Christ because you haven't been in the presence of Christ in this life. The trajectory that you are setting is a trajectory that is going to just simply be here and is not scooting out into eternity. You're living just for now. Christ isn't a part of your life at all. And I'm even talking to those of you that may have made some sort of decision when you were four, five, six, eight, ten. And that may have been the last time that you really interacted with Christ on a personal basis. I'm talking to you too. He will rescue you and set you upon that rock and put a new song in your life and put a new song in your heart and give you a hunger for his word, a hunger to connect with him, and a hunger to tell other people about who Jesus is and what he's done. But he will give you a hunger to repent from your sin and yourself. May this be the morning that as we look at these passages that we see that our delight is not here. Our delight is in the things of God. Because what Christ has done for us has given us a new heart and a new mind. Let's not let one more day go by without saying, Jesus, you are more than enough for me. Heavenly Father, guide us in all that we do and say. There are no physical words, that, audible words that I can say that I know can change anybody's mind, but it's only by the Holy Spirit that our hearts are changed. You've called us to examine ourselves and test ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. So, Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would conduct an examination on us right now, a thorough one. Where are our minds? Where are, is our speech? What does our heart beat for? What do our lungs breathe for? Where do our feet take us? And, Lord, does our lives make sense without Christ. And I pray, Father, that we would get to a point where we're like, I don't want my life to be anything without Christ. Thank you for your son dying for our sins. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins, and you have rescued us. If we are followers of you and we've repented of our sins and turned to you, you've rescued us. But Father, there is none of us here that are good enough, no, not one, to be able to ascend the ladder to heaven. None of us. We need you, 
And thank you, Lord, that you came down, died on that cross, rose again, sent your spirit into our hearts to keep us. I pray, Father, that everyone would walk out of this place with that knowledge, with that reality, with that hope that Jesus provides. And so, Father, if there's anyone here that needs to trust in Christ, that needs to rededicate their life to Christ, or that needs to pray, may they come forward to either talk to me or someone or to use these steps as an altar of prayer. The time has come, Father, for us to take ownership of the faith that you have placed in us. You own us. We are yours. Help us, Lord, to see the responsibility that comes with that as your, with you being our Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. We sing, It is well with my soul.